This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome everyone today on behalf of the Biennale of Sydney. My name is Melissa Ratliff and I'm the Curator of Programs and Learning at the Biennale. Firstly, welcome, thank you very much to all of our audience and our speakers for their time and being here today. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and the waters upon which our exhibition stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and any members of these communities who are with us today. Welcome. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge, which I think is fitting today, the strong history and contrib contribution that refugees and migrants have had to our many communities in Australia. Um, at the Biennale, we've been living with Ai Weiwei's monumental sculpture, Law of the Journey, every day for the last two and a half months or so. And that's been a real invitation for us to think about and discuss these ideas in the context of this exhibition. So I'm really happy that two and a half months in, we can organise this discussion more formally to talk about the issues around refugee policy in Australia. So let me um, very warmly thank the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law for pulling together this panel today on the Biennale side. Thank you very much. We're excited um, that so many people have come and I'd like to now hand over the mic to Elaine Pearson, who's the Australian Director of the Human Rights Watch, who's our moderator today. And she'll start proceedings and introduce the speakers and what's happening today. So thank you again from the Biennale side and over to you, Elaine. Yep, that's perfect. Good afternoon, everyone. And it is great to see so many people here for um, a discussion on a really important issue, especially given recent events that have been happening on Manus Island and with respect to Nauru. Um, my job is really to moderate this discussion. So we'll have about 45 minutes of moderated Q&A. And after that, um, I'll ask you if there's questions that you'd like to ask of our panel. And we've got a really fascinating group of speakers here today, so I'll introduce each of them. First, uh, sitting here on my left is Ben Doherty. Ben is the immigration correspondent at The Guardian here in Sydney. He has been a foreign correspondent kicking around the region for many years. He was formerly the Southeast Asia correspondent for The Guardian and South Asia correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. He's won three Walkley Awards, uh, including in 2016 for a feature on the systematic flaws in Australia's immigration detention regime. And more recently, as a fellow at Oxford University, he did a dissertation, Call Me Illegal, which examines the semantics of asylum, particularly the language used to describe asylum seekers in political and media debates and its impact on public opinion. And he also has a new fictional book out, I believe. Out, out as of yesterday. No, I got it. Oh, yes. wonderful. All good bookstores and some pretty organised. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Um, next to Ben, we have uh, the award-winning author of Offshore, Behind the Wire on Manus and Nauru, Madeline Gleeson. Madeline is a lawyer and she's also a senior research associate at UNSW's Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. She has worked uh, with the Jesuit Refugee Service in Cambodia and with the UNHCR and the International Catholic Migration Commission in Geneva. 
She holds a Master's in International Law from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Next to Madeline, we have Guy Goodwin-Gill. Guy is widely recognised as the preeminent legal scholar on international refugee law. So if you have any legal questions, Guy is your man today on the panel. Um, he also happens to be the acting director of UNSW's Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Um, he's also an Emeritus Fellow of All Souls College at Oxford and an Emeritus Professor of International Refugee Law at Oxford University. Um, he also practices as a barrister from Blackstone Chambers in London and has had a very distinguished career encompassing various roles with UNHCR, advocacy before the courts and academic posts in Canada and Europe. So as you see, we have a very distinguished panel who can take us not only on a path, I think, talking about refugee issues with respect to Australia, but also what's happening around the world. So maybe just to kick it off, um, I mean, I think all of you here have probably just seen the really incredible work by Ai Weiwei, Law of the Journey. And I think when we see pieces like this, it touches us in a way that all the newspaper reports and other reports that you know, we see um, day to day on these issues um, doesn't. And I guess I had a question for the panel, but maybe Ben, you want to take a go at it. How do, does art have the ability to really transform politics? Um I, I think absolutely. I think art and imagery can be extraordinarily powerful, and there are sort of lots, lots of examples. Um, uh, Picasso's Guernica, in, in terms of changing, you know, public opinion around the Spanish Civil War. I'm imagining, I'm remembering uh, images of Aylan Kurdi, the the, Turkey, uh, the, the refugee uh, boy washed up on the beach in Turkey um, from the Vietnam War. Um, Kim Phuc, who was the the napalm girl. All of those sort of images can, you know, so arresting can can immediately sort of cut through as you sort of say, thousands and thousands of words of newsprint to sort of cut to the heart of an, of an issue. Um, and I think this is an incredibly powerful work. I hadn't seen it before today. Um, a couple of things struck me when, when, when I saw it this afternoon. Um, one is the scale of it. Like, it is a big, big installation. I think that sort of suggests to me the scale of the issue we're talking about, that this is a global and a large issue that will require a, 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 a huge international, multinational coordinated response. This is not an issue for, for rich countries or for poor countries or for the global north or south or for one region or another, but it is by its definition a, a, a transnational issue and, and will require an international response. The other thing that struck me walking around today and I walked around with Madeline um, is the absence of any faces. And I don't know if others have noticed that, but the, the sort of the dehumanisation of those people I, I think is very striking and that's something we see very, very often in the debate we have around forced migration um, in this country and around the world. Um, we see it on Manus Island and Nauru when people are referred to by their six character boat IDs. We, we see it in, um, in the sort of dehumanisation uh, of describing people as illegals. Um, all of those sort of language changes, all of those sorts of um, efforts to distance people, to dehumanise people, the, 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 the sort of water metaphors that are used for, for people who are seeking asylum, you know, floods and waves and surges, all of those sorts of things, I think have a very dangerous impact in, in that dehumanisation and I, I imagine that's what that, that's seeking to, um, to portray. So I think it's a very powerful piece and I think art does have an extraordinary power to, to move debate. Ben, just following up on that issue of how, I guess, you know, the debate sort of dehumanises the individual stories. There are a number of really powerful quotes around the artwork, and one of them says, it's a quote, it says, in the first place, we don't like to be called refugees. Are the terms asylum seeker and refugees now so loaded that 
it's actually not useful to refer to people that way anymore. I, I do think there are connotations that are, are being attached to those words now that, that go beyond their kind of strict legal definition and, 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 and Guy can speak to that in, in particular, but um, they are used often in, very, in a very pejorative sense and I think the way language has been manipulated in this debate, not just in this country but, but in, in, in lots of places, is not is no is no accident. It's 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 a deliberate manipulation of language to try to to change the understanding and the shape of debate. We don't have asylum seekers coming to this country anymore. We have illegals. We don't have an immigration department. We have a border protection force. We have all of these um, these quite loaded and pejorative terms that change people's understanding of what it is we're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, just to follow on from that, I think the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Melbourne has had a project where they've actually looked at some of the, the terms that are being used and they've said, if we refer to people seeking asylum as opposed to asylum seekers, it's actually better um, in terms of the... I've, the I've had this debate with them and I, I note that they're the name of their organisation is still the Asylum yes. Seeker Resource <laughs> Centre. Um, uh, it's, it's a problem for newsprint because people seeking asylum is three words instead of two. Um, and and, and it, it's quite a serious thing. You know, you, you, you need, for the purposes of journalism, um, short phrases and, and, and terms that, that convey what, what you mean. But it is a problem when that term starts to become manipulated and twisted to mean something else. So, I mean, looking at, the, looking at the sculpture, I mean, it made me reflect, you know, we haven't seen images of boats landing on Australian shores for some time now. And we're led to believe that the boats have completely stopped, that this horrible policy um, has actually had a positive, effective result in stopping uh, migrants from reaching Australia's shores. Madeline, can you tell us a little bit more from your experience? I mean, what is going on right now on Manus and Nauru and what is the, the cost of these policies? It's always hard to know how to answer that question. Over the last few years, I don't know whether you say things are still bad, things are worse, things have reached a critical point, because the number of times we've said things have now reached the most critical point, and then we go another six months, 12 months, 18 months past that. And you say, okay, well, now is the most critical point, and, and somehow you can always get worse and worse. So I don't know how to compare it uh, as to what's come before. We've said Previously, UNHCR and others have said previously that it is really dire now that action be taken. Uh, what we do know is that the majority of people who have been transferred to these two islands have had their claims processed. There are still some people who are going through final appeals and review processes, but the bulk of people have reached an outcome one way or another. Uh, and so we've moved into the next phase now, which is what next? Um, it has been suggested at various times that permanent settlement in Nauru and on Manus Island or, or elsewhere in Papua New Guinea might be possible, um, but that's proven elusive and, and not possible. And we continue to see that um, in terms of the problems of integration and long-term sustainability there. And that in fact, neither of those countries uh, is saying now, yes, we will take everyone. Both of them are saying, no, they're gonna have to go somewhere else. And so we've moved into that question of where. Uh, for a while, uh, from the Australian side at least, there's been a lot of fingers pointed at the US. And, and the US resettlement agreement has been held out as the answer to all of our problems. We just need to wait for the US to, to get on with processing these people and then they'll all go to the United States uh, and it will all be finished and it'll be fine and done. Uh, 
Um, it's not as simple as that. There are people uh, who either will not be accepted for the US or for whom that's not a viable option. And that includes people who have family members, immediate family members in Australia um, or other reasons why uh, Australia or elsewhere is the better choice for them. Uh, so the reality is there is no solution still for them. There is a New Zealand offer to take maybe 150 people a year and that would mean something for those 150 people a year, but we have continued to, to stall on taking up that offer. And there will be people for whom the only realistic practical option is Australia. As I've said, usually because they have uh, immediate family and, and other ties to the community here. Um, so whether the government changes its policy on that or not, um, until that happens, they're sort of stuck in limbo and deteriorating physically and mentally. Madeline, how many people are we talking about? How many people are left on Manus and Nauru? How many have already gone to the US? Um, and I guess how many are not refugees or are not going to be resettled because of their status? So the numbers left on these two islands are under 2,000, possibly even under 1,500, I think, at this point. So we're, we're talking about a tiny number of people left. Um, I think a, a several hundred, a, a few hundred, maybe two or three, I think, have gone to the US already. Uh, but, but many more than that have gone through the processes of having initial interviews, uh, getting fingerprinted, having their background um, checked. So there are a number of people in that process, uh, only a few hundred that have gone so far. Um, there are then about uh, maybe 100 to 200 people uh, who have been flagged by UNHCR as being of concern because they have been deemed not to be refugees or in need of international protection and therefore are on what might be called a deportation pathway. They are at risk of being returned to their countries of origin. Um, but there are concerns about the integrity of the process or the integrity of those decisions. Uh, either because for various reasons uh, their engagement with the process uh, wasn't ideal or there might have been flaws in the process itself or situations might have changed. Um, but the people that know best are telling us that there are about 200 or so cases that need careful review uh, and so far that's not occurring. And I mean, October last year, I think we all saw, you know, the images of the main centre on Manus Island being closed, um, and then for weeks, men remaining in that centre because they were afraid to move to other centres in and around the town. Um, earlier this week, we saw a Rohingya man who was very sick, who threw himself from a moving bus um, and ended his life. You know, what, I guess, what does that say? What is, what is the state of services now? Like, what is the situation for, for people who've been left on, on Manus Island? And Ben, also feel free to jump in. Yeah, I mean, Ben, maybe you know better than me. My understanding is even more minimal than, than when the centre was open, in the sense that there's sort of the bare minimum services being provided, uh, but nowhere near enough uh, and nowhere near what's required to meet the very complex needs. If you can think of the the type of people who are in this place, uh, who already fled difficult circumstances and then faced several years of imprisonment um, and, and the difficulties that came from that then. You're talking about very complex um, health and other needs uh, that is, I think, a bit ludicrous to suggest that in a remote Pacific island that, that they could be met, um, and particularly in this case. But, but Ben, you're in touch with people there. Yeah, I, I was last in, on Manus um, in November, October, November, when when the centre was shut down, but the men were still there, um, and so I, I was able to get in into what was then the sort of decommissioned and closed centre, where there were still a few hundred men holding out, and sort of get in there in the in, in the middle of the night and and um, and and talk with the men there and see the situation there, and it really was. Um, uh, 
you know, some of the most dire circumstances I've seen in, in camps or in places anywhere around the world. Um, you had men on a, you know, shallow sand island digging wells for, to try to get some drinking water. You had, a, you know, a tiny store of medicine that they were sort of stockpiling and handing out when they could to the people that needed it for some, you know, extraordinarily um, acute injuries. There was no, there was no mental health care. Um, this was, a, you know, a place disintegrating. Um, and I mean, I've I've watched um, over years, and I, I'm I'm in contact with a, with um, a lot of the men who are on Manus in particular, um, and the resilience has been extraordinary for a long time. Um, and and you saw that you, you saw almost a defiance when you're in there. I, I remember being in there, and, and you know I was there in the middle of the night, and um, and um, uh, a young guy from Sudan took me to the front gate of the of the of, of the detention center and he had the key he had the he had the, the key to the lock and he unlocked the gate opened the gate and closed it again and locked it and said look you know i'm in charge now and it was it was it was quite a remarkable thing you know he was his own jailer essentially but but a a, a he had a, a degree a sense of autonomy and control over his life for the first time in a very long time and i think that's one of the things beyond those very fundamental basic needs about shelter and food and medical care is a sense of direction, a sense of purpose, and a sense of control in their life. That's one of the things that that, that seems to to affect people in those situations so bad is no sense of where they're going and no ability to control where their lives is going to end. Their lives are going to end up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was on Manus myself in September, and I think the militarised nature of their life is something that people don't. You know, it, it isn't something that's widely covered. And I remember you wrote about this after you came back from Manus. But I think it's that thing of being told when to eat, when to sleep, when you can go and see the doctor and having zero control over your life uh, when clearly, you know, they've come from situations where they've been fleeing persecution and, and have had very little control over, over their lives even before they reached or tried to reach Australia. Guy, I wanted to, to bring you in and I guess hear a little bit about the European perspective because, you know, sometimes we hear from Australian, the Australian government and Australian politicians, oh, the Europeans are asking for us for advice now because they're facing a real refugee crisis and, you know, we've solved it. How, how do Europeans view Australia's refugee policies? <coughs> Thank you very much, Elaine. And, uh from what you said earlier and from my French accent, you can probably gather that I do include European experience in my background. Um, what we've seen in particular is a concerted Australian effort to peddle Australian practices abroad. Uh, but what they have discovered, and this is, includes, of course, officials, but also a former prime ministers down, or I should say perhaps former prime ministers upwards, um, what they have discovered is that there's a different, it's a different situation entirely in Europe from a perspective of constitutional values and principles. And that is something, of course, that we don't enjoy here. We do not have that constitutional commitment to basic principles of accountability and the rule of law. Now, Europe's not perfect. It faces precisely the same tensions. And the Australian approach certainly appeals to the extreme right. It appeals to the fascist tendency. But it also appeals to people, ordinary people, who are concerned with the apparent inability of governments effectively to manage the movement of people. But what Europe has seen in the past is it is just impossible effectively to manage such movements um, without, in many respects, breaking the law. And that's why Europe, I think, at this moment is undergoing quite a, quite a, a, a is going through a conflicted period trying to work out how to engage with the countries from which people come in order better to manage what is going to be a continuous movement of people in search of protection, in search of, of livelihood. 
And what the European law, what European constitutional principles teaches, amongst other things, is there are certain things you cannot and should not do. And that includes abusing people. It includes not destroying the lives of those whom you intercept, who perhaps are not entitled to protection, who perhaps might be returnable to their countries of origin. And what also European experience shows us is that you can, you won't always manage it perhaps, but you can do things better. You can manage the movement of refugees more effectively, more humanely, more responsibly, more cooperatively, and indeed I would suggest also a great deal more cheaply than is done here. And you can do that within the law. You do not have to abuse people. You do not have to consign people to the situation which Ben and, and Madeline have described. You do not have to deliberately destroy uh, their lives. But it does take intelligence and it does take imagination. And that sadly seems to be lacking at this point in time, as indeed is the willingness of Australia to cooperate effectively uh, with its partners, not just in the region, but in the international system overall. And I think, t building up on what some of the things that Ben and Madeleine have said, we do need here seriously to interrogate the motives of those who knowingly, deliberately, intentionally introduce programs and practices which lead, foreseeably lead, to abuse, to psychological damage, to physical harm. We need to interrogate those who introduce those policies to examine exactly why, knowing that alternatives are available and feasible, they nonetheless engage in these practices continuously. I think it's a very worrying aspect of our current cadre of policymakers and politicians. Down the line, I think, as activists in this area of human rights, refugee protection, and so forth, we are going to have to consider what other measures might be viable in order to ensure that in the future, measures are introduced which do respect the dignity of those in search of protection and do which aid in the finding of solutions. And that may well indeed, I think, lead us to consider the potential criminal liability of those who have knowingly done such harm to others. I mean, I guess just following up on that, I mean, does international law play a role in influencing domestic politics? Because, you know, you would say Australia has been a signatory to the Refugee Convention for a long time, and yet it is routinely flouting its obligations under that treaty. So, so how can we, you know, get our government to, to respect international law? I think many states, not just Australia, are conflicted in that respect. They have signed on to certain basic principles, certain basic rules, certain obligations. And then they find that when they come to implement, or when it's demanded that they do implement them, they find themselves up against other pressures. The pressure of re-election, for example, or the, 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 the risk of being penalized or uh, pilloried in the media, which politicians tend not to like too much. And I think that very often leads to them attempting to find a way around obligations or to reduce to a minimum the level of their commitment. In some respects, I think that's part of the scene, and that's why international lawyers and advocates for human rights and international law are in this perpetual dynamic, in this tension, which is, exists between the obligation on the one hand and the domestic needs on the other. So I'm not surprised that states will try to find ways around or ways to minimize their obligations. It is indeed true that Australia has one or two not so very nice examples of rejection of international law and supervision. Uh, it, but as I said, that is, uh, that's in many respects par for the course and something which we must expect. It's something which also applies in, in civil life, taking international law out of the picture. We are 
in perennial conflict, if you like, or contestation with government to ensure, for example, that social justice is included as part of their policies and practices. And sadly, we know all too well that corners tend to be cut and that social justice very often has to take a back seat in the eyes of those who govern us. I mean, earlier this week, uh, we had a very impassioned maiden speech from Jed Carney, the, the new Labour MP. Um, where she basically said, look, something has to be done. This situation on Manus and Nauru cannot continue. Can we, if we have another election um, that's based on the boats and around asylum seekers, is this you know, an argument that Labor can win or is it, is it impossible? No, I think it can be won very definitely because I think we can show examples of how we can manage the movement of people much better than we do at the moment. You do not have to abuse people. There are other ways to achieve the goals that you, that, that you want to set for yourself. And there are other ways of, of ensuring that the people at large can be confident in the ability of their government effectively to manage their, the borders, because that is a major concern, but humanely and responsibly and in accordance with international law. I, I, I agree entirely with Guy, but, uh, but there is a risk that uh, in, in, the, in the, the, the sort of heated atmosphere of, of an, election to, an election campaign, all of a sudden it becomes a race to the bottom and, and, and for, you know, since Tampa and, and, and to be honest, before, uh, the politics has always poisoned the policy and it's so difficult in this area to have a sort of rational, reasoned policy debate because the political imperative, the desire to be seen to be tough on borders, you know, to thump your fist on the table and, 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 and to be the strongest on that because it's seen to be electorally advantage, advantageous, that 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 is for for generations now poisoned the the the, uh, the ability of this country to have a, a sort of reasoned and practical debate about this. I mean, what would be what would be the solutions then? Say, you know, we were able to get the government to abolish offshore processing. What would be some alternatives, I guess, to address the fact that these are mixed migration flows? Not everyone who's getting on a boat um, is fleeing persecution. There certainly are people who are leaving for economic motives. I guess, what do we do? What, what, what's the solution? And this is for any of you, really. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps the first place to start, uh, instead of what should we be doing, is what should we not be doing or what are we not prepared to do? Uh, start with what's not on the table. Uh, and I can say, if I was a policymaker, I'd say, well, I'm not prepared to abuse people unnecessarily or I'm not prepared to implement policies for the sake of being cruel, to tear apart families, to cause damage to children. I, I'd think of some pretty minimum standards and they're things that most Australians would support because they're, they're basic fundamental human values that we all share. And you say, so we're not prepared to go beyond that standard. And that we've got to keep that because in the debates we see now, there is no flaw. There is no thing that's too bad for us to do. Um, so we need to reintroduce that flaw first. Uh, and then I think the issue is that um, migration is not something that can be uh, solved or answered or addressed with a simple slogan like stop the boats. It's something that's complex. It's something that would need a very uh, multifaceted approach of understanding. Um, I mean, a few suggestions, if I was to put out a few, I'd think, okay, well, let's, let's start at the beginning and see what are the places where we can stop the reasons why people have to flee in the first place? And, and Guy afterwards might have some interesting examples, he's just come back from Africa, uh, about efforts to stop some people from having to leave their homes in the first place. Um, Australia could do more at the moment, I think, uh, in terms of why people are having to flee Myanmar to try and address the root causes of displacement. 
Then you say for those who have fled and are maybe just across the border, say in Bangladesh, what are ways that we can help support those populations there to make them less vulnerable uh, until they are able to return home? For the people that are elsewhere, say in uh, Malaysia or Indonesia, how could we use uh, increased targeted strategic resettlement uh, to offer them uh, you know, legal but also safe pathways to reach Australia without having to resort to being on boats? And then looking more broadly, uh, there are people in Australia, there are rural towns which are clamouring for more people to come there. Uh, there are um, private groups who are willing to sponsor and support people to come. So open up and allow that to happen. Where you have family members, where you have communities who are able to support uh, private sponsorship, similar to like Canada has, why not allow that to happen and facilitate it? Um, using resettlement for what it is, which what it's supposed to be, which is a strategic way of alleviating pressure uh, on those transit countries so that people aren't forced to resort to, to getting on a boat. Now, it won't be that simple, but that's just five, four or five options I've thrown out there quickly uh, that would do a huge amount to relieve the pressure. Um, and, and there are many more that could be explored. Yes, and, and thank you. I was, last week I was in Senegal, and Senegal is a major sending country for migrants into Europe. And it was fascinating to discover what I had supposed to be the case, which was a lot of that is indeed driven by economic considerations. Uh, fishing, for example. The fishing resources off the coast of Senegal were depleted by offshore fleets. Fishermen increasingly went north and their pirogues discovered Spain as a place perhaps to stop. And so began the movement of people who could no longer earn a livelihood locally to move to other countries. Now the Spanish cut that off, cut off that route quite effectively, and so they turned inland, cr crossing the Sahara, crossing Niger, crossing into Libya, and so ending up in Italy. But it's a movement that is very pushed very much by economic considerations, because Senegal is actually uh, a remarkably stable country in many respects, but it's a movement that's going to continue. So both the Italian government and the German government are involved in initiatives which might help to perhaps moderate or mitigate that movement. Uh, the German Development Agency, for example, has a project called Succeeding in Senegal. So it's not about directly combating migration by pointing out the risks the risk to your life that you, you face crossing the Sahara and the Mediterranean. It's about actually bringing home to those in Senegal who might be thinking of moving, how they might be able nonetheless to succeed, how they might be able to acquire the money to marry, to build a house, to have a life there. Those are the sorts of projects that need much more investment as Europe itself, I hope, will one day discover. Although at the moment what we see with many European governments, in particular departments of the interior, ministers of immigration, much as here also, is an over-insistence on control, on deportation, on removals. And what governments generally tend to forget is that when you're sending people back to countries like Senegal, you're sending back a natural resource. You're cutting off a natural resource, an income stream. 12% of Senegal's GDP comes from overseas remittances. 22% of the Gambia's GDP comes from overseas remittances. So when you deport the irregular migrant who has been regularly sending money back, you are impoverishing both him and her and the country of origin. And what I think we've seen very much in relation to Australia and other countries' policies is the, the limits of unilateralism and the inhumanity to which it leaves, leads. And it is only, it seems to me, by cooperating much more effectively with others, not just in the region but elsewhere, that we can see any signs of meaningful progress on this difficult question of how to manage the movement of people, some of whom will be in need of protection and some of whom will not. And I think 
Guy alluded to a really uh, interesting point: is that the the causes of, of, of irregular migration are not, are not often or not always as, uh, terribly simply defined. You know, someone flees because of X, but but often th there are a number of there's a confluence of factors that, that are forcing people to go. And you look at something like the Syrian conflict, which has driven you know millions of people out of that country, and it, it's often framed as a an ideological or a religious conflict. But but in great part, there was a massive drought in Syria, which drove lots of people to cities looking for work. It drove the price of bread, you know, absolutely skyrocketed. All of these sorts of e economic factors can drive and exacerbate uh, conflict and persecution and these things. So the factors driving people to migrate are, are often very complex um, and they're very, very powerful. No, I would totally agree with that. And I mean, I think, you know, one has to question the logic of cutting Australia's aid budget right at a time where that international development assistance could be playing a really important strategic role in the origin countries where a lot of these people come from. Um, and also picking up on Madeline's point, I mean, I think, you know, many people would be quite prepared to wait it out in camps if they could work and if their kids could go to school. Those are generally the two basic things that, that people want. And I think people would be very happy to stay in Indonesia or Malaysia or Thailand. Um, and so I'd like to certainly see our government investing more money in those transit countries and perhaps setting up reception centres in those countries that aren't detention centres, as opposed to you know, putting billions of dollars into the camps in, in Manus and Nauru. I guess I wanted to sort of take it a little bit broader, just, just probably have a last couple of questions before I open it to the floor. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the Rohingya crisis, which Madeline, you just touched on. Ben, I know that you were in Bangladesh um, earlier this year. We know that there's about a million uh, Rohingya refugees in camps right now in Bangladesh. What is the situation um, for them? Um, sadly, Elaine, the situation in those camps is, is dire and it is going to get very much worse very, very soon. Um, I first started going to, to Kutapalong camp, which is the biggest camp near Cox's Bazaar, right on the border there, in about 2011. I remember going and being struck. It was about 110,000 people then, and had been there for, for decades at that stage, and being struck how big this, this was like a city. It was enormous. It's now about 650,000, 700,000 people. You can stand in the middle of this camp and look across in every direction as far as you can see, and you see nothing but entirely denuded hills covered in, in, uh, in canopies and shelters as far as you can see in any direction. It's like a city that stretches as far as you can. And the level of need there is just extreme. It's an incredibly young cohort. Um, about half of the people in that camp are under 18. There are hundreds, if not uh, several hundreds of babies being born every day in, in, in that camp, uh, in, in, in those camps. Um, and the rains are coming, essentially. What's happened is people have moved into what was um, heavily forested hills and they've been completely uh, denuded of, of any vegetation that is sort of binding these hills together and they've, and they've sort of carved a, a, a flat spot in the side of a hill to build a shelter and that's where their family is. And when the monsoons come and when the cyclone, when the cyclones pass through that part, of, um, of the world, there will be landslides from the top of those hills and there will be flooding in the bottom, there will be waterborne disease. Um, the aid agencies are on the ground and there are a great many of them um, are sort of preparing as best they can um, in, in, with this monumental task of sort of preparing to get through the wet season, which is gonna be very, very difficult. Um, and you kind of look at that situation and think, well, how can a, how can a solution be be found uh, you know, in, in, in kind of the, the parlance of international refugee law, a durable solution. And you look at voluntary repatriation. Um, and I remember sitting 
with a very old man um, and he was talking about leaving his village and watching the Tatmadaw, the, 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 the Burmese military, systematically work their way through his village, setting every building on fire. Those who couldn't flee were either hacked to death or thrown into the fire themselves while they were still alive. He managed to flee. He's got, he, he got over the border with his family and I sort of said, is there any circumstance you could imagine going back? And he said, what am I going back to? Um, and he said, this is the third time I've fled my country and I can't go back again. So the idea that a large number of those people will soon be willing to walk back into the arms of the military that's persecuted them for, for generations and has committed a genocide against them in the last year um, seems to me to be far-fetched. I think if you look at local, reintegra local integration, um, Bangladesh is a country facing enormous population pressures of its own. It's a poor and developing country um, facing lots of systematic challenges and to put the burden, as so often happens in these cases, on a neighbouring developing um, uh, country seems incredibly unfair. Um, and then if, if you were to look at, um, uh, you know, third country resettlement, the numbers are just too great. You could, you could offer every resettlement, resettlement place all over the world for the next, you know, decade and, 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 and you would only just beginning to, 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 to find homes for people. Um, and and, and we, we live in a climate where, where the, the biggest third country resettler, the US, has cut its numbers, you know, in half, essentially. Um, so it does seem to be this extraordinarily intractable problem um, and there are going to be some problems down the line. Um, you've got a large, very young cohort that is sitting there not able to work, not able to go anywhere. Um, they are utterly ripe for radicalisation um, and or onward migration, people getting on boats and finding somewhere else to go. And I think one of the saddest things that, you know, speaking to people there that's happening at the moment, um, the Tatmadaw, uh, the Burmese military, when they went through these villages um, in Mongdor and these places, rape was used as a weapon of war. And that was about nine months ago. And so babies are now starting to be born that were conceived from these rapes. And there is a huge level of concern that these babies are gonna be born in secret and they're gonna be abandoned or they're going to, there's gonna be infanticide. Um, there is a, you know, a, a burgeoning humanitarian crisis in this part of the world. If I could just comment, and we've seen this week, uh, well, we, we know that this type of situation requires leadership, it requires international leadership. And we've seen this week that Canada, uh, for one, ha has stepped up with a series of uh, measures that it plans to take to try and uh, assist in this regard. And, and it's the whole range from the, the stick of, you know, potentially supporting a referral to the International Criminal Court uh, down to, uh, I guess, the carrot, which is the more sort of supportive measures, the ones that uh, immediately uh, address the vulnerabilities um, that Ben has just been mentioning, um, particularly in Bangladesh, but also in Myanmar. So they've come out with this long, comprehensive list of uh, measures that they plan uh, to try and support or to do to address this, this problem from start to finish. Um, but the point is the leadership, to, to come out and say, we're going to call this for what it is, which is a really difficult, problematic situation, um, and we're going to, for one, stand up on the international stage and say we're going to help where we can, uh, we need to see more of that because to sort of relegate this to a situation that's happening up over there and pretend it doesn't have anything to do with Australia or the rest of the world uh, will come back to bite us and them very badly. Well, that's right. And I mean, I think, I mean, the Australian government has not even suspended military cooperation with Myanmar. I mean, I think there was a Guardian piece that said actually military assistance to the Myanmar government has increased in the past year despite the fact that it's that same military that has been killing, burning down villages, committing systematic rape. Um, so if we, you know, there is no point training a military like that. I think the Australian government needs to join the initiatives of Canada, Europe and others um, to really end this cycle of violence. 
because when we speak to people also in, in those camps, and Human Rights Watch had a researcher there just yesterday, actually, we just put out um, a release about a, a landslide um, that happened and completely destroyed, demolished uh, the, the shelter of this family. But there's so little space in that camp that this guy is being forced to build a new shelter in exactly the same location where that landslide happened. Um, but for many of these people, you know, they don't want to come to Australia or to other countries. All they want is to go home. Um, but they want to be recognised as citizens. They want their land back. They want to go back to, to their homes. And so everything we can do to put pressure on our government um, to ensure that happens, I think, is, is really what we need to do. I think I've probably monopolised uh, the panel enough. Um, so I wanted to, to give you all a chance to, to ask questions. Um, I think we have, we have a microphone. Um, hello. Uh, hi, Elaine. I'm not stalking you, but yeah, nice to see you again. Um, so I guess my question uh, is for everyone on the panel. Um, so we know that Malala has been, uh, you know, uh, given the opportunity to become an honorary citizen in Canada and become an active agent of change um, to empower the girls as well as fight against uh, the Islamic extremists and Taliban. So is there an opportunity for the West to enable refugees to speak for themselves, uh, to address the problems that are happening in their hometown, uh, to, and, you know, more like a, a see them um, as an active agent of change rather than victims of uh, violence? Is there an opportunity for us as Australia, uh, in Australia to support them and create a platform for them to speak for themselves? Sure, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm frequently reminded, uh, if ever I slip up in my language, that uh, refugees or displaced people don't need to be given a voice uh, and they don't need to be allowed to use their voice because they've got them, they're speaking, they're using it. Uh, the only difference is that perhaps we're not listening. Uh, so absolutely, I think it's, it's not a matter of trying to find people and help give them a voice and allow them to speak for themselves. It's just a matter of the rest of us uh, recognising what, what dialogues are happening, recognise what conversations we're ignoring and, and playing more of a part of it. So absolutely. And, and I think there are a couple of examples, someone like, and I know he'll be familiar with a lot of people here, Beruz Bushani in, um, on Manus Island has really become, you know, the voice of the men on Manus Island and, and doesn't need anybody to filter his words or to give him a platform because he will, he will find one. We've just got a question here. You began by, quite rightly by talking about the egregious impact of the policies, Australia's policies uh, on the people in Manus and Nauru. But we also have five years worth of people who haven't been able to get on boats or who have got on boats and been turned back. Can you please reflect on the legal and ethical implications of that from Australia's perspective and, um, and also on the political message that it is generating or the political environment it's generating in Southeast Asia where very few countries are signatories to the Refugee Convention? I think that's very useful to be reminded of that situation and that quite clearly with regard to refugees and those seeking protection who are physically present in Australia, the country has clear legal obligations as it does to everyone, to, to migrants, to citizens as well. But what we find is I think a clear 
disinclination on the part of policymakers to pay attention to the evidence base. We know, for example, that people thrive if they are allowed to work in particular and allowed to contribute to the communities in which they find themselves. And yet, why do governments, and it's not unique to Australia in any, in any way at all, why do governments seek to, do, to deprive them of that, of, that, <coughs> of that opportunity to give back something uh, of their own? I do not understand it. Uh, in many respects, the law, the international law, will have been breached. Uh, governments are expected to treat people on a basis of equality and to show reasonable basis for any discrimination. And again and again, we find they don't do that. They simply distinguish, they make distinctions against uh, the minority, I think very often for political purposes, with the consequences that we've seen only too well in Manus uh, and in Nauru, but they take place also here in Australia. I think, again, we need that pressure to be kept up to remind the government of its obligations as a civic actor, as well as someone, as an entity that is bound by international law as well. Uh, it's very hard to make conclusive statements about Australia's turn-back policies because of the secrecy that surrounds every aspect of them. So it's hard to have the facts on which to base the legal analysis. But uh, if we take as our starting point that it is contrary to international law to return someone uh, to a place where they fear uh, persecution or, or serious harm or might be returned back to somewhere where they would face those risks, uh, if that is Australia's obligation, then there is a uh, strong indication that returning people who traditionally on those boats did have very strong claims um, is problematic. If what the government's uh, claims is true, if the people intercepted uh, don't have valid claims for protection in Australia, uh, then my question is why can't we, having intercepted them, bring them into Australia, subject them to processing, as we always used to do, and then if they really are all found not to be refugees, then put them on planes back to their countries of origin? Um, if, if the claim is true that they're not entitled to protection, then why not do that? And it can all happen in Australia with oversight. They can be returned anyway, but there won't be all the secrecy and the suggestion. Now, the fact that that doesn't happen, and the fact that, as I said, traditionally, if you look at the number of people arriving by boat who are found to be refugees, I think that indicates that and many of these people do have valid uh, claims for protection, and that returning them uh, without a full and proper assessment of their claim is in breach of Australia's obligations. Hi, uh, my name is Zora, uh, basically a PhD student at uh, Australian National University, and I'm doing uh, exactly the, the examining the how international refugee law influencing the domestic policies of uh, Western states. So my one of the one of the things uh, which is puzzling me is that the voting politics is one of the main reasons that because of which. Uh, Western states moving towards stringent policies. For example, Australia is doing so. But uh, the puzzling thing is that Canada's uh, policy is more normative than Australian policy. So vote politics is there also. But why vote politics is, is so uh, important factors in Australia, not in Canada? So this is one of, the, one of my questions. And another question is that Australia is a democratic country. It has a very, a very good, uh, 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 it has a very good uh, record of maintaining human rights. Um, uh, and international, uh, there, are, there are many things like uh, if any country who violate international human rights norms, uh, in that case, uh, local uh, actors, for example, the epistemic community, civil societies, they put 
meaningful pressure on the government so that they can, uh, the country uh, becomes more normative, respect the human rights norms. So in that case, when Australian, Australia's, Australian government uh, takes uh, these kind of stringent refugee policies, why the local actors like civil societies, they are not uh, that much uh, able to uh, put a meaningful pressure on Australian government. So these are the two questions. I... So I guess the two questions about political environment in Canada, how is it different, why is it such a different situation compared to Australia, and then the role of civil society well, here? Speaking as a Canadian as well, <laughs> um, I, I think that's a very good question, but I think the, the answer would take a, a seminar or two. I think one of the most important factors in Canada is the extent to which the community, people at large, have been involved since the Indochina refugee crisis in sponsoring resettlement in the country. That has, I think, put a completely different perspective on the issue of refugee reception uh, and resettlement, indeed, the involvement of the people in the process. And I think that's something which, for various reasons, other governments, not just Australian, but also uh, some European governments, have tended to resist. And I think they do that for mixed motives. I think one of it is uh, part of an anti-democratic tendency, the fear that if the people get too involved, then the people might have too much influence. And I think that's something that we need as civic actors to, to take on board and perhaps to push and to keep pushing for initiatives that are already beginning here on private sponsorship, amongst others. So I think that's one reason that explains the difference. I mean, there are many other factors involved. Guy, can you just explain for people here, how does it work in Canada, the private sponsorship? Well, it system? began very interestingly in, back in the, in the 1970s when the Canadian government foolishly said at the time of the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis, uh, we, the government, will sponsor and take in one refugee for every one that the community itself accepts. And the community came on board and said, right, we'll do that and suddenly Canada had a refugee resettlement quota of 40,000. And sponsorship takes place through small groups, which might be, for example, uh, involved with a church or another civic organization, uh, a group generally of five who come together undertaking to provide basically support for a year for a refugee or refugee family. Uh, the government is not out of the picture at all. It's done cooperatively with government. But that means that the refugee family, for example, is immediately engaged with the community, a community of individuals which will introduce the, the family to the doctor, to the dentist, perhaps find employment, find accommodation, uh, help the kids go to school, buy them the clothes that are necessary for Canadian winters, amongst other things. And that engagement has such positive impact both for the refugee them, refugees themselves and for the community. I've seen it first hand. So that's basically how it works. And I think a really interesting one is, is the way the Australian, you know, the sort of pale imitation Australia has uh, is, uh, is different in that almost the opposite's been done here um, in that every one, per one refugee that's sponsored privately in Australia reduces by one the number that the Australian government will bring and the costs are prohibitively expensive. It's a very difficult hoop to jump through. It's a, it, the Australian scheme feels to me like one that was set up almost designed to fail. Uh, on the point about democracy, um, it goes without saying that just because a country is democratic doesn't mean that it respects human rights. Uh, they're two different things. Uh, and I, we could need another few hours to debate, you know, the chicken and egg. What's the issue in Australia? Is it that the government is leading the public astray on this issue or is it that the public isn't demanding more of the government? I mean, there, there are arguments both ways. Uh, but the one critical issue I will say is that we don't have a culture of rights in this country. Um, not only is there no legal protections in our constitution for rights, but uh, I'm, most Australians, if you ask them, 
do you need rights? What are, you, what are rights? What rights are you lacking? What rights do you need? I'm not sure they would know how to answer that question. Um, so I think, and this doesn't only remain limited to the immigration or the asylum sector, it's in many different aspects of our society. We would benefit not only from a Bill of Rights, but from a nationwide discussion about what rights are, what they mean, why we need them, how you balance them when they conflict. You know, these are discussions that we just don't have in this country, but other countries have a history, a cultural, societal, legal history of rights, which we lack. I think that's absolutely right. I think there is a major democracy challenge here in Australia. And I know I'm speaking as an outsider, but what worries me in particular is what I characterize as executive extremism. We don't have that balance, which is essential in any, it seems to me, democratic society between the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. Uh, we have executive extremism, and I'm afraid that's distorting the picture. We haven't suffered the impact directly as citizens or residents yet. It's the, the migrant and the refugee and the asylum seeker who have suffered. But if you look at the way in which national security legislation has developed amongst others, um, you will see that the potential there is for some very, very serious incursions upon which we, as Australians and Australian residents, take for granted in the matter of civic rights. Thanks to all the speakers. Um, I guess I've, it's a follow-up question from a couple of questioners ago about the impact not only of the turnback policy but also Tony Abbott's decision to put a complete freeze on resettlement from Indonesia. And maybe Ben, I know Ben, you wrote an article about the Caladeras Detention Centre in West Jakarta about a month ago, but others can answer this. Um, I guess, you know, there's, there's about 15,000 asylum seekers, refugees still in limbo um, in Indonesia. Um, I know, for example, in East Kalimantan, in a detention centre called Balakpakan, people have been protesting their detention for over 100 days now. But why is it that um, there is very, very little uh, media coverage about the plight of these people? given that their limbo is a direct consequence of those two aspects of Australian um, policy, the turn back and the freeze on resettlement from Indonesia. And I agree with Madeline that if we were to increase our resettlement from those transit countries, that would be part of the alternative. But um, there just seems to be a complete blackout on, on, on these people who are, who are you know, in limbo there. Um, and that includes some of the Rohingya who the Archinese fishermen, you know, actually brought in whilst all the governments in the region were turning them away. Um, it, it, it's worth noting as well, Mark, that um, uh, Australia's not uninvolved in what's, what's happening there. So, so the, the funding for Caladiris, uh, the, the detention centre, which is now over full and people are actually trying to get inside the detention centre because they're living on the street outside, that is funded through the IOM by Australia. So, um, and Australia has recently sort of cut off the money to, to a large extent. So to, to pretend that, that we've created this bulwark and, and we're not involved there uh, sort of um, is a misrepresentation as well. Australia is very involved and I, I, I think the sense I'm getting is that Indonesia is becoming increasingly um, concerned with what's happening. You're getting this build-up of people and there might not be great numbers coming in, but you do have this quite large population who are stranded there and there, there is no real solution at the moment. Now, the, we have the Bali process, which Australia and Indonesia are sort of co-chairing, but it's proven horribly sclerotic in terms of actually finding some outcomes in terms of looking for, for resettlement or, or finding a way through. So. I think you're right. I, I think that is a building pressure point that's that's going to be of 
significant concern. If I can add one comment, bringing it back to the, the human aspect. Uh, when I was last in Indonesia, I spoke to a number of the refugees there who were stuck in Limbo, wanting to know if a resettlement option would become available. And their questions for me were not what I expected, and I, and I didn't have the answers. It was, uh, if we're applying for university, which of the various English as a second language courses is the one that they will look at. Because we know the US universities use this one, what do the Australian universities use? And then, okay, so I've got these various skills. If I come to Australia, which one am I most likely to get a job in? Where are the biggest gaps in your employment sectors? If we come to Australia and get a choice, where are the cities or towns where we're most likely to get employment? Uh, and then it was about food. What type of food do you eat there? So that we could start trying to find the food now to get ourselves Custom. So even though they were in limbo, had been there for years and may never make it to Australia, they were so focused already on how do we construct our lives so that the second we touch down, not only are we ready to, to integrate, but we're ready to, to study, to work, to make the most of our life, uh, to, to really succeed. And I didn't know what to say to them, because what do you say? At that point, they don't have resettlement options. You don't want to say keep holding out hope forever. You don't want to say give up hope. You, you know, you don't really know what to say. But I was just struck by they, they knew more about this country than I did about university entrances and, and job opportunities and cities and things like that. And they were just focused on the practical and ready to start their life the second they got that visa. Hi, sorry, a really quick question. Um, directed at Madeline, but anyone can answer. Um, you spoke before about rural communities who uh, have job shortages, particularly in the younger market. Um, do you have any kind of practical suggestions um, as someone who grew up in a rural community and knows lots of people who say the same thing? They say, we have such a shortage of young workers. How do we, you know, we would happily take on um, refugees to come into the town and, and we've seen the positive impact it has. Are there any practical suggestions for how communities can reach out and make it known that that's something they want to be involved with? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I was just recently at the Rural Australians for Refugees conference in Wodonga and it was uh, a fascinating weekend but also quite humbling reminder that a lot of this debate is dominated by people from the cities, mainly Sydney but also Melbourne. Uh, speaking from our city perspective on behalf of rural Australia, which we most of us know very little about, um, and that's problematic. And so what has been so helpful, and I've seen especially in the last week or two even, is when you have rural Australia, regional Australia speaking for itself, these are our needs. These are our issues. This is what we want. This is what we could accommodate. Um, and speaking to their you know, elected politicians, but also putting that on record for the media uh, so that those of us in our city bubble that like to pretend we speak for all of Australia but we don't um, can get the reminder from the people actually that we're talking about, what do you need? What would help? What would it take? Um, because these policies can't be just made in Canberra or just made in the cities. Um, so, like I said, those articles where, where it was really practical examples of this town and what they need, uh, continuing to speak up and say, here's what we want, and getting that on the record so the rest of us can read it and think, oh, okay, maybe there's something we need to look at there. Really helpful. There are a couple of great examples. The, the, the classic one is Nil in, in country Victoria, which was a, a town, and, and you see it in lots of country towns, that was sort of withering on the vine, a bit, you know, a loss of particularly young people and job opportunities. There was a, a big chicken factory in Nil, and it was basically going out of business. Um, and um, through a couple of connections, uh, a whole lot of Karen refugees from the uh, from from Myanmar, from the from the eastern side of Myanmar, moved there and have basically revitalised this town. And there are there are a couple of hundred 
hundred there now. They all work in the chicken factory. They're all working. They've got um, and this this whole community is coalesced a, 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 a around this new group. Um, and you talk to Andrew Broad, who's the the Nationals member for Mali, and he's one of the biggest supporters of, of, of private sponsorship um, uh, for refugees in the Australian Parliament um, because he's seen what it's done to that town. It's revitalised the economy. It's revitalised the the fabric and the and uh, of of that community. This question goes out to Ben, but everyone else as well. When we talk about refugee camps, particularly in Bangladesh, Jordan, and Pakistan, what forms of governance and power dynamics come into play within the refugee camps themselves? Right. Um, uh, look, <laughs> it's uh, look, it's it's worth making a, a point at the outset that that often when you know the discussions around refugees. Um, people sort of immediately think of refugees in camps, but it's about, and I, I may be corrected, about 50% of the world's refugees live in sort of urban urban settings and are, and are not in camps. So it's it's certainly certainly not the only um, uh, scenario. Uh, power dynamics. I'm not exactly sure what uh, what you mean, but I I, I have an inkling. Um, I mean. Uh, and they vary from place to place with you know how how well set up they are how established they are how big they are and the sort of resources that get there certainly um uh, there is sometimes um, a feeling of, of, of a loss of autonomy there, but I, I, uh, in, in terms of that, that your lives are quite directed while you're in a refugee camp and you're, you're sort of beholden to the agency, the UNHCR or the, the, uh, the, the NGO that, that, that might be providing services to you. I think most people though in those situations are grateful for the support and the, the, uh, the, the assistance that's, that's, that's being put around them. I, I think um, as well, and, and this goes to Madeline's point a little bit, uh, uh, often when, when people are in those camps, they're thinking about what's next, where do I go next, what's my next step, what can I next do? Um, and that tends to be the focus, I think. But I'm happy to chat in, in sort of greater detail about, about what you mean by power dynamics afterwards. I think it's impossible to generalise, in fact. I mean, camps and settlements vary immensely. I don't think there are probably two that are identical. I mean, some of them are semi-closed, some of them are more in the way of settlements where individuals can move freely in and out and just use the, the, the place where they're presently at as a, as a, as a, as a base um, from which to engage with the local community. Others are much more circumscribed. Governance also varies. Some are relatively self-governing. Some have a, a much higher government presence, uh, national government presence than others. Um, NGOs, non-governmental organisations uh, are generally present, very often providing certain services under contract with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Medicine, Accommodation, Education and so forth. It varies immensely. I think one of the big challenges, and, and we certainly saw that uh, in the 1980s when I was in UNHCR looking at repatriation movements, one of the big challenges is of course representation, going back to the refugee voice again. If you are trying to promote or looking at the possibilities of return, how do you ensure that refugees voluntarily want to go back, uh, who speaks in the refugee camp or settlement among the refugee group for the refugees. That I think is a continuing challenge, not just for the broader picture, which is getting the refugee voice heard in international fora, uh, but at the local level, getting the refugee voice heard in matters of self-governance and agency. Just to add to that, uh, in relation to the Australian context as well, it's important to compare. You're never going to get a group of several hundred uh, thousand or, or more people and they're all the same and have the same story and the same interests and needs. So it's it's always important to sort of recognise the differences between a group. That said, 
you're more likely to have similarities between the people in the camp in Bangladesh that have come just across from Myanmar than you're going to get, say, in Nauru or Manus, where you have people from all different countries, all different backgrounds, who have fled for very different reasons, who have had very different experiences and are looking for very different solutions or outcomes. Um, that requires a much more complex managing uh, in many ways than when you have a single group who have fled for a single reason from one place to another. Um, like I said, it's not to oversimplify it, but often those complexities in Nauru and Manus have been overlooked and we've spoken as if everyone on Manus is the same person or has the same experience and the same life story. Uh, and, and that's been problematic from a policy perspective in various ways. Thank you. I'd like to um, just take us back to uh, asylum seekers currently on our shores, which I think is about 30,000 people at least. Um, I'd, and picking up Guy's point about the, um, I think the term executive extremism is perfect um, and, and abuse is the latest version of that. I'd like to seek your views on what we can do about it. The government has just, or Dutton and the department have just changed the rules around the payment, the minimum payment that asylum seekers can get in this country, which is called an SRS payment, or SRSS, but any payment. It's 89% of the lowest um, uh, Centrelink payment. Um, and they have um, now started to say that if you are on that payment and you haven't had, you've, you, you have about three weeks to get a job. If you don't have a job already you are, and you're judged to be fit for work, you are expected to get a job. And if you don't get that job, then they will remove your payment within a certain finite amount of time. And they've applied that, to, they're starting to apply that to single men, but they're also now beginning to apply that to the families that have been returned from Manus and Nauru because of ill health and, and other things going on for them. And the consequence of removing that payment from people is that they will be destitute. So we face, I think, um, recent figures are about 900 people that are likely to be completely destitute without accommodation, without any form of financial support. Um, and they are extending this bit by bit. And I'd really like to know what you think in terms we can do, both legally to act to prevent a further act of abuse, um, but also um, as civil society to challenge some of this because it, it, you know, Ben does a fantastic job in terms of publicity, but we're not getting publicity about these things. And it also contains a, ma a major social policy principle, which is we're actually talking about having had a centre link, having some sort of social security net for everybody. Now, if we're actually saying we're willing to make people destitute, then we're actually, that's a, that's a fundamental change to our principles around social security. So I'd really like your views on what we might do in this desperate situation. 3,800 by August. Yeah. No, I, I, I picked up on that just last week, and I was, I was worried again by memories of what was attempted to be done in the United Kingdom about 15, 20 years ago, uh, where the then Home Secretary Blunkett introduced a policy which was effectively uh, a policy of destitution, deliberate destitution. Uh, he was advised by his policy, his uh, advisors, that this might well lead to people dying on the street, and it is rumored that he said, so be it. Now, that policy didn't go through because the court stopped it. 
and they were able to stop it because the, the, the consequences would have been contrary to Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which outlaws inhumane treatment, amongst other things. Uh, that, of course, we don't have here. We don't have that legal recourse, in, at least in, 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 in Australian law. Um, looking further ahead, I'd like to see a day when those responsible for such policies, if they were to travel overseas, might sound themselves in a country that actually recognizes universal jurisdiction and up on a charge. Uh, because if we can't deal with sadism at home, then uh, perhaps we should think about jail time in some other place. Um, no, that's, that's a trite remark, and I'm sorry for it. There is more to be done here locally, I think. It is the evidence base that I would want to demand time and time again. What is the evidence base for these policies? Um, where are they going to lead, and why, how, can they, how can you justify them? And there is no evidence base. It goes back, I think, to viciousness and callousness again, I'm afraid. There is nothing that justifies that sort of a treatment, as far as I can see. And we need to focus on, I think, on the, the consequences of these policies, because I think when the people realize what's happening, as they do when they see what's happening in, in PNG and, and Nauru, they do begin to get outraged. And perhaps when these things are closer to home and not hidden away in distant parts, we will find people getting more and more outraged, and so we must be. Echoing that, it's, it's another example of the unnecessary cruelty that we were talking about before, that we don't need policies that are unnecessarily cruel. Because the vast majority, if not all, uh, asylum seekers, refugees, people in this country who can work would like to work. Uh, so if the policy outcome is let's get people off a dependency structure and into self-employment and agency, that's something on which the government and the people themselves actually have aligned goals. So there's no need for that to be a brutal policy. That can be how do we get that? What training, what skills, what job opportunities do we need to provide to make sure that every single person who is fit and well and able to work can work? And that can be something that is, it is a win-win. So it does make you wonder why then instead of that one, which is the productive, efficient way of achieving everyone's goals, do we take this other approach which is just going to cause extraordinary difficulty and cruelty? And adding to that too, if I may, if you allow those who perhaps may eventually be found not to be entitled to protection to work or to gain skills, and you do return them to their country of origin, then they go back as ambassadors for development, better able to contribute to the country from which they came. It's the win-win that Madeline's just mentioned. policy also applies to people who are actually in education. So where we have managed to get young asylum seekers into university or whatever, or into TAFE, because New South Wales government did have quite progressive policies about free places in TAFE, they will be judged, if they're deemed eligible to work, they will be told to get out of education. So, that's, so it's even more self-defeating. You're right, we're not growing people at all. And there are about 200 and 80 people currently on the Asylum Seekers Centre jobs list, desperate to work. So if anybody here has got any employment opportunities, please see the Asylum Seekers Centre in Newtown. And if any of them are under 18, then to deny education and formation would, I suggest, probably be contrary to the Convention on the Rights of the Child to which Australia is party. But I think, I mean, I think there is a really important role for civil society in documenting the harm that is done by these policies, both offshore and onshore. And even though it might seem like this government is impervious, it's not going to change, it you know, just wants to be as cruel as it can be to, to refugees, someday there will be accountability for what this government has done. And it is extremely important that we have the documentation there to, to support it. I wanted to maybe just jump in and ask maybe a couple more 
final questions before we wrap up. I mean, I think we've, we've certainly sort of noticed from the tone of the discussion that we've had here, there is a sense of like, what is it that we can do? What can ordinary people do um, who are very concerned um, about the impacts of these policies? Um, what, what can they do to, to get involved or to address these concerns? It's the question we get asked every time. <laughs> uh, and it is a difficult one because it is only tinkering around the edges. But I'm seeing more and more that the tinkering around the edges can be really important. So I think it's breaking the task down into some sort of manageable bite-sized piece, looking in your little part of the world at what the issues are, whether it is that you're from regional Australia and think there's something that can be done there, whether there's someone in your community who's about to have support withdrawn. Um, you know, when we've seen children get brought back uh, from Nauru to the hospital in Brisbane and all the people in Brisbane go down and protest out the front and don't let that child be removed. Uh, there are little things that can be done in your little part of the world to just continually keep up the pressure of, we're going to focus on this one issue and try and make life a little bit better, even if it's just for one or two people, even if it's just on one issue. Uh, collectively, that will send the message, keep up the pressure, that, <laughs> that, that unnecessary cruelty is not the way to go. And, and I think, you know, everybody here, everybody here lives in a democracy, you know, imperfect though it is, and, and, and I think democracies are, are shaped by people who turn up, people who, you know, give up their, their weekend afternoon to come and talk about these things. I think engagement is the answer. You know, you can write letters, you can attend rallies, you can be part of movements. Um, you have those democratic tools at your disposal. I think that's absolutely right, and I think it's very true that one person can make a difference, and in particular, one person can make a difference for another person, and it's that focus on the individual and the impact of policy and practice on people at large that we need to, to keep ourselves grounded on. And maybe can I ask each of you maybe just to share like a good example or a good practice um, from another country that Australia might be able to learn from or, or adopt? Um, Maybe I could start by giving one example that I've noticed. Um, I was in Greece a couple of years ago, um, just after, just really at the height, I guess, of the migration crisis. Um, and there was a hotel in downtown Athens um, that had basically been disused um, and squatters had moved into the hotel and they turned it into a place for refugees. And it was incredible. It was something that was actually run by the refugees together with, I think it was, you know, a local sort of socialist um, organization in Athens. Um, they collaborated on everyone who stayed in the hotel, had to cooperate, there were certain rules in place, they had jobs to do, they had um, lessons, they had uh, medical um, support and treatment. But it was something I think that was so different from our policies, which are very much about kind of stigmatising and telling refugees what they what to do, where to go and where to sit. But this was something that was extremely empowering for the refugees because it really put them in control um, of their environment. Um, I, I think, and we, we touched on it before, the Canadian example of, of um, private sponsorship of refugees, I, I think... I don't think there's there's sort of one silver bullet that will that will change po policy radically, but I, I think that's one avenue that, um, with public pressure, with with agitation around uh, that issue, and with structural changes to the way that policy works, that could be another avenue. And and that's what I think a lot of the world is looking for is these sort of legal and safe alternative methods. I think things like uh, improving the seasonal worker uh, uh, program, um, circular migration, I, I think we need to be looking at all sorts of, um, of, of avenues of opportunity. But I think that private sponsorship one could be very, very powerful, harnessed properly. 
every example of a country which has kept its border open when a crisis has been directly over the border. And there are countless examples up and down the African continent. Um, we're seeing it at the moment now with the Venezuelans needing to flee, the countries that are opening their border, allowing services to go down there to the border and meet them, uh, to the extent that Canada kept their border open. Um, Bangladesh is the big one, which at various times has tried to or wanted to perhaps shut the border, but has kept it open and allowed people to cross. Um, and the most contentious one perhaps in Europe, but Germany, when they said, all right, come in. And when, when we saw the pictures of the people coming into the central train station and Germans down there clapping them and welcoming them. Uh, now, if that approach had been followed by um, Germany's neighbours, we, we would have seen, I think, a very different turn of events there. You know, they know that Syria is right there. They know that there is a massive exodus from Syria right now. And most of us in the world are not innocent in what's going on there um, and have had some role to play uh, most of the governments in the, the conflict. So to say, you know what, at this moment, we're just going to have the border open and we will deal with it later. We're not saying that you will come here and stay here forever and become citizens. We're just saying for now, when there is an immediate acute pressure, let's open the border and let you in and get to safety. And if I can just put my international refugee lawyer's hat back on again, I, I must admit I have certain reservations about the way in which we label some people as refugees or some people as not refugees. I am conflicted in that regard because I'm very conscious that the need for protection is writ much more, much more widely. But I do want to emphasize that if we're going to maintain distinctions between those who do and those who do not need protection, we can do it. We can do it effectively and efficiently as we've done in the past. It means front-end loading. It means having a process in which you bring people in, you counsel them, you provide them with legal assistance, and decide what is the best to be done for them, whether it is to be that they be returned to their country of origin because they have no need of protection, or that they be granted that protection which is due to them. We can do it, we have done it before. It requires front-end loading, a measure of expertise, a challenge certainly, but I think it's much cheaper, much more effective, and much more humane than what we see at present being operated here. Thank you. So thank you so much to our panel for a really excellent and thought-provoking discussion. I wanted to say thank you to the Sydney Biennale and to the Caldor Centre for hosting this discussion. If you want to get uh, more information about some of the issues that we've discussed here today, I would encourage you to go to the Caldor Centre's website. They have excellent briefing materials by Madeline and by Guy. I'd also suggest you read Ben's uh, reports filed on The Guardian, um, or also go to the Human Rights Watch website where we regularly file uh, documents about what's happening offshore. So thank you all so much for coming along this afternoon.